Welcome to Hope and Resilience Podcast. I'm John Hitchens, and today we have a very special guest on. He's an author, he's a pastor, and he also uh, actually started a nonprofit called Fresh Hope. And he's here today to talk about his story and his organization. So welcome aboard, Brad. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I'm really glad you're here. I thought about how to intro, uh, intro you and talk about all the different things you did, but I figured that would take up the whole podcast. So <laughs> I thought about how I could describe you and I decided I would, I think it's really one word. And that one word I think is a word that the, the world is screaming for. Uh, they, they have lost it, many people, and a lot of them uh, can't live without it. And that would be hope. I think everything you do yeah. oozes out the word hope. It's part of your organization name. And so I was wondering if you could talk to the people today and explain to them how you came about with Fresh Hope or your story, and and we just go from there and see where it leads us. Okay. Well, um, yeah. I have bipolar disorder, and for the last um, almost 20 years now, I've lived very well, haven't had any episodes, no problems, nothing like that. Uh, I think it it might be 18 years as opposed to 19, but no issues. And, um, but it wasn't always like that. And I didn't know I had bipolar until 1995. Uh, Fresh Hope really started out of my own needs. So I'll go back to 1995. I was pastoring the fast, uh, 13th fastest growing church in uh, the United States and North America. And uh, everybody thought I was just a genius, and boy, I was I was going strong. I would go to a hotel and I'd lock myself up for uh, forty eight uh, hours, sometimes seventy two hours, and I would barely eat, and I certainly wouldn't sleep when I did it. And I just thought I was a workaholic, but I could come home with more work that was done and ready to go than uh, I a whole year's worth of sermons usually. And um, my, you know, I would wear my staff out because I'd come back and just, I got this idea, this idea, let's do this and this. And I, I did not require a lot of sleep and I had never had a down day in my entire life. And then um, we needed to relocate our church. So we had grown from about 800 to, I don't know, it was 2000 something and then, um, so we had to fight the city uh, for this location because it was a manufacturing plant. And I started to get really sick. I no longer was living as a functioning, hypomanic type person. Um, I became truly manic. And it, it was over a time, but it was about, oh, a good two years. Well, maybe maybe a year and a half where I was really not well. What and was your age at that time? I was 37. And so, that's pretty late. Yeah, that's um, unusual. Yeah. My father had bipolar disorder or manic depression. That's what they called it back then. And he was always depressed. I didn't know. Nobody told me. And we really didn't talk about his diagnosis that it was in fact hereditary or could be. And plus he had um, been depressed. So 
I never was depressed. So I just figured I was kind of a workaholic. I enjoyed everything. I was very, you know, gung-ho on anything I did and blah, blah, blah. And um, in the process of fighting the city, I was having to do a whole bunch of stuff. I was on the news. We had to hire attorneys to work for us. I had to go talk to all the city council members. It was just extremely stressful. And I was not doing well. And as that started, I started doing all kinds of crazy things. Like I would, one of my favorite things that I recall doing was going out to these um, country roads where there were steep and big hills and gravel roads. And I would go at nighttime when it was dark out and I would turn my car lights out and go as fast as I could on them. And sometimes I would open my car door and stick my foot out. I, I, um, if I heard about a murder in the city, um, and I was out driving around, I did a lot of driving at nighttime, just, just ruminating and fuming and whatever. Today, I know that I probably did things that I, used shame really to manage my mood. Cause I would say you're a pastor, shame on you or, you know, whatever. And, um, but, um, and I was crying out, Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me. Something's wrong. My wife asked for help. My, um, I talked to my associate pastor and everybody was kind of afraid to do anything. Uh, cause we relocated and, um, we grew by another thousand people in one week. And um, it nobody wanted to really deal with it because I needed time. I, I needed to be away. I needed to figure out what was going on. And they didn't know, you know, no one knew. And um, so one night I was going out to these country roads and I uh, stopped at an outhouse by a lake. Uh, that was just right off the road that I was headed on. And um, I stopped to go to the bathroom. I needed to to urinate. And um, I saw somebody in the doorway of this outhouse. I knew it was a dangerous place, and I really liked dangerous places. I don't know why, but, well, I know why now, but I didn't know why at the time. Yeah. And... Um, I was quite manic. I had just gotten home from Africa and it was just a whirlwind trip. And I had problems with my leaders that night. And so I was just reeling. I, I know today that I probably had a mixed uh, mood and um, I was like a race car in high gear and the motor revving, but I was going nowhere, you know? Yeah. And, um, what happened was I stepped to the side of this outhouse and that I, that part I remember. Um, but what I recall is that I urinated. <laughs> I don't recall anything else, but uh, an undercover officer then ticketed me as I, when I got to my car, he grabbed me my shoulder and there were other people out there, but I really wasn't, mindful of people being around. And then I was accused of uh, masturbating in front of him for 20 seconds. And that isn't what I would ever do. It's not part of, 
any struggles I have, that's not one of them. Yeah, uh, not in my right mind anyway. And uh, as and this officer decided he would notify the news because when he found out who I was and he was like, why are you out here? And don't you realize? And I didn't. And I went at that between that time and driving home, I went from being as high as you could be emotionally to the bottom dropping out and depression was just there immediately and um, I was suicidal. They they kept people with me the entire time. It finally broke on the news and was in the news for a good year and a half. And, um, of course, people didn't know enough about what was going on with me. I didn't know. And finally, I went to the hospital. I had to beg to get help from the church that I was serving. We had to beg the elders to help me get help. To let you go. Yeah, and um, well, and I, of course, I was taken out of the pulpit right away when it broke on the news, but um, I ended up going to a hospital that specialized in, they had some pastors or uh, some psychologists that helped a lot of pastors. So I went to um, Grand Rapids to the hospital, Pine Rest, and I spent the better part of probably three and a half weeks in outpatient treatment. Back then, they they really did treat people. It so wasn't. Did they actually know you, your diagnosis? Did they determine that when you showed up? Then. Well, what happened is no, no one knew. I had okay. been seeing I had been seeing a counselor here in Omaha immediately because I was depressed. Well. Here's an interesting little part of the story. A doctor friend of mine um, that I had gone to Africa with, uh, she knew that I was really depressed. I was, you know, if you if I would have had a moment, I would have alone, I would have uh, done myself in, I'm certain. And um, she <laughs> gave me a bag, a baggie full of Prozac. And she said, here, you need to take, you know, she was caring and trying to help. So uh, I took that Prozac. And by the time I got to the hospital, I was manic. Because if you have bipolar disorder, you should not normally, they never would give you just an antidepressant because it will throw you into mania. You need a mood stabilizer. Well, by the time I got there, I figured the hospital was lucky to have me, you know, and um, I was ready. To run. I was ready to run the place, and um, I was sure they'd want me to stay. And you know, oh, two yeah. others and offer the job, grandiose, you know, just grandiose. And I couldn't even finish the personality stuff they were giving me and everything. And I was talking a mile a minute, and um, my wife was with me, and she was just exhausted, you know. And um, so I went to see the doctor and I had a, she was 71 years old and she had been a missionary in Africa and um, she was a psychiatrist. And um, so she let me talk. That was my first appointment. And then the next day I went to um, a group therapy and this gal was talking about some crazy stuff that she did when she was, uh, manic, and I thought, gosh, I wonder if I have 
bipolar. And uh, so the next time I went to the doctor, which was either that day or the next day, um, I said to her, I said, do you think I have bipolar disorder? And she goes, oh, honey, yes, yes, you have bipolar. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me the last time? And she said, because you didn't shut up long enough for me to talk. So it was really painful, but yeah, I, I was glad that I found out uh, because for me, I thought I had a monster living inside of me. It felt like it had to push out and I had to act out to get the monster to behave or do stupid things for the monster to behave. And there were a lot of things I couldn't remember because it was like, I was high. It was like somebody shot me up with methamphetamines. And um, lo and behold, um, I found out that there was a monster, but it wasn't me. I was worried that I was the monster. And um, so in long story short, um, a group of people from the church that I was pastoring said, hey, um, we understand mental illness. We'd like you to come and be our pastor. And um, because the doctors had assured everybody and I let all the leaders of the church have access to the, and they actually had a a plan that they said, this is really foreclosure for myself and my family and the church that I was pastoring. They really said, you need to go through a process, a healing process and let the hafes have closure. Well, for whatever reason, they chose not to. And um, we've never been able to go back and ever really, you know, early on in the process, uh, after everything happened, they told me to stop coming to church and all kinds of stuff. So we had a lot of trauma from all of that, and uh, the people that started the new church said, we just want you to be our pastor, but we want you to get better, and if you get better and don't want to be our pastor, we'll have done our job, you know, blah, blah, blah. And but that's just amazing is that you're, you know, you, you take a blow of uh, having a mental health condition. Your, your real family, as far as your church family, uh, many of them reject you, and yet God brings in another group of this those individuals that actually rescue yeah. you and, and treat yeah. you the way you should have been treated, which is yeah. phenomenal. I mean, that's a well, and really the people that started the church were from the other church. Yeah. Uh, they were key leaders that, um, and a lot of them were medical people and said, this is not the way to treat somebody with a mental illness, you know, and there were, you know, I know today people did the best they could, but, they didn't do too well at, at helping me. Um, now, that group of people had me come on board. Uh, they started a church. They called me and said, uh, we just want you to get better. Don't work. We'll pay you. And they gave me an 18% pay raise. And then for the better part of 19 months, um, I just did nothing but heal. And uh, my family and um God provided a safe place for us. So we're and, uh, during those 18 months, um, what kind of, uh, I guess, therapy or uh, medicine or a combination of that, what did you do for those 18 months to help? Right. 
Well, once they diagnosed me in the hospital, they put me on medicine right away. And they uh, they used a medicine. Uh, the, the doctor there, I think she told me that she believed that they needed to get me into a stable condition and know that from my blood, you know, from uh, technically that I was stable. Okay. And uh, so they used... Um, at that time, I it was Depakote, but there's numerous medicines that they use, and there's new ones yet today. But uh, by taking my blood and doing the blood work, then they knew. And then I would know that's what stable feels like. That's yeah. what, you know, and it worked. Um, and uh, basically, I've only relapsed once, and that was due to getting some medicine um, goofed up. So, yeah, you said it was so. There was that the relapse in two thousand eight that you talk about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All and right. So, go ahead with your story because you, you you get with these groups, you start to heal. Then what happens? Well, I got better, but I just didn't. I was barely coping. Okay. I certainly was not thriving. You weren't I thriving. Was, I was. I was doing what I needed to do, but I just felt like a broken merchandise. I felt like I had no hope and I felt like the best of my life was behind me and there were, I had no passion. And so what happened when I relapsed, I uh, complained to my doctor and said, I need to go someplace to get support for this. And so I went to uh, some major uh, groups that are groups by some major leaders in the, you know, uh, mental health sphere of things. I'm not going to say the names, but I went to those groups and I got worse. And the reason was, is because all they did was vent. And when people just go to a group and all they do is vent about how terrible things are, there's, I know today, there's research that that actually makes people sicker. And um, it isn't that people don't need to vent. You do need to vent, but you need a game plan. You need a way to move forward. Hopelessness is when you don't see a way forward and hope is when you see a way forward. So then I really started complaining to the doctor saying, these groups are just terrible and blah, blah, blah. And finally he said, why don't you start a group? I'll, I'll help you if you need help. By the way, I've had the same doctor since 1996. Um, and uh, he told me when he retires, he'll still continue to see me if, in fact, he retires. And uh, his name was uh, Egger? Or do you want yeah, to Dr. Yes. Michael Egger. He actually Michael. wrote part of the first book with me. Yes. yes. And um, yeah, he, um, what happened then was um, basically I started Fresh Hope and I, the, the part of my story I'd never wanted to tell, I told. And I have now, I my passion light came back on. It was like all of a sudden I had a, I had been repurposed. And um, I, I keep that monster inside chained up. He is in the basement of my house, so to speak. And um, I don't feed him. I don't give him water. And every now and then he'll grumble or growl a little bit, and I'll just ignore it. And um, But every day I do what I need to do in order to keep that monster chained up. Yeah. And I'm living well. 
I mean, it is quite possible to have a mental health diagnosis and be through, go through hell and, uh, you know, have it nearly wreck your life permanently. And um, I can honestly say my life's never been better. Yeah, you talk about that uh, in some of your works and even on your uh, website about it isn't about coping with your diagnosis. It's about thriving. And, and mm-hmm. that's why you basically uh, started Fresh Hope. So let's let's talk about that, how it got started, what you do in Fresh Hope. And then uh, I'd like to get into not only that, but uh, coaching and how to start a group and all that stuff. So we can let people know sure. what you have out there is available for everybody. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about your, uh, I guess, your philosophy in Fresh Hope and what you do and what your thoughts are on your organization. Yeah. Well, the overall philosophy is quite simple. We take... Hope, there's 25 years of clinical research on how hope works. And it's uh, very simple, but hope works a certain way. Clinically, they know that from this research. I I got to meet one of the doctors who uh, did 14 years of that, 25 years of research. We got to know each other. And um, then we have infused faith into that hope. And so we go from kind of having a positive mindset, you know, hopeful mindset to having sure and certain hope because God promises to take everything and make it work for our good. And um, so Fresh Hope uh, was the first one that was faith-based. We were the first ones out there. Um, And we are the only ones worldwide today that, do that this is all done by peers it's people that have lived experience no doctor no loved one wrote our stuff it comes from people who've been there i and, think that is really critical i mean doctors and stuff are, are great but i tell you what uh it, it's kind of like yep. <laughs> i flew airplanes it's kind of like a guy that talks about reads about flying airplane versus talking to the pilot how to fly an airplane so this resonates big with me is that I think lived experiences uh, many times put down. It's not important, but I think it's critical because if you've lived through it and made it through it, I want to know how you did that and what you yes. did. So and here's, here's the deal. Uh, medically, we need the doctors and yes, we need the medicine and we need therapists. They help, but that's the medical side. And on the flip side is the how do we then live? And uh, if you only have the medical part, you actually end up with learned helplessness because you think you can't without your doctor and without your therapist, you know, and yet they can't hold your hand 24-7. And um, AA has known this for years, you know. AA has known that um, people who have lived it can help other people. Who are yeah, living their, their peer support stuff is phenomenal. I, I know numerous people that went through that program with a, a peer support guy or girl, and it's just mm-hmm. amazing what the, the success that they have with that. So our whole thing, uh, our groups that started, have both loved ones as well as the person with the diagnosis. Now, we have all kinds of things that people can use in their groups. We have videos, 
like a, a 12 week series. We have a series for this or that or whatever. We have podcasts that they can use. We have uh, blogs that they can use in their groups. And unlike other mental health ministries that have like an 18-week course or a nine-week course, and, and that's what I would consider them, their short-term intervention things, that is not how people get better. If, 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 if um, recovery could be taught in nine weeks or 12 weeks, and that's what the church likes. You know, they like to have something that starts in the fall, ends by Christmas, and you take a break, and then you start again after Christmas, and you go to Easter, and then you take a break during the summer. That's nonsense. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, when the church is busy taking those breaks, that's when people need support more than ever, because suicide rates usually go up, for instance, around uh, Christmas. And, uh, Also, adults don't learn by you telling them, we're going to cover this in 12 weeks and you're going to know how to recover. You know, it doesn't work that way. And, um, you know, they may hear something seven times and finally it sinks in. So our groups are open just like AA is. You go, you go as often as you want, you go as long as you want, and you can always come back or whatever but our facilitators are trained to know what material to use when. And um, now what happened is we have this philosophy that people with lived experience can help other people with lived experience. So that was the mental health side, right? Yeah. Well, then, then the local county jail asked me to come in and said, can you figure out how to do this within the jail in order to help people? because 70% of all the inmates have mental health issues. So I've been working on a curriculum for that as well as then we said, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are hopeless that don't have hope. So we started a thing called hope coaching that uh, some churches are actually having us train like their small group leaders to use what I would call the five critical aspects of uh, they're the pieces of a conversation that you have to have with people in order to help them move from hopelessness to hope. And it, they don't have to have a mental health diagnosis. All kinds of people become hopeless for all kinds of reasons. And so we have hope coaches available to people online, but also we have been training hope coaches that are in churches and then they help the pastoral staff. Um, and I had a, a good friend who passed away, and his widow said to me, I'd like to come under the umbrella of Fresh Hope. And she started a ministry called Refocusing Widows, and uh, that is peer support groups. And then um, we have now introduced, um, we will be having our next one in October, God willing, Um called uh, for pastors, uh, Fresh Hope for Pastors, and it's called Healing the Heart Wounds of Ministry. So that is specifically based upon trauma healing groups, which we also do trauma healing groups, but um, it's based upon the concept of what you have to do to work through um, trauma from a biblical perspective. And um, 
you covered several things there. Obviously, the pastors with the rate that we're losing pastors in churches. Obviously, that thing is phenomenal. We're going to need that desperately. But I'd like to go back. You talked about bringing in the caregivers and the people that suffer together. And to me, again, some of the stuff I've read, that's unusual because when I talk to the sufferers, they go, no, I want to, you know, I want to complain about my caregiver or the caregiver goes, I want to complain about the sufferer. So why do you do that as far as bringing them together? Um, For a couple of reasons. Um, One, (coughs) I felt like, when we attended some of these groups, I felt like um, if my wife went to the her group and then I went to my group, that it would be like, oh, they probably are thinking, oh, all the sick people are together, you know. And it's like, intuitively, I knew as a pastor that anytime there's a family disease, if you will. If somebody in the family has a disease, it affects everybody. And I knew I had had enough training in Alcoholics Anonymous to know that if that many times those who love the alcoholic are actually sicker than the alcoholic. And uh, so I just knew that, uh, you know, the loved ones had as much uh, in this as the people who have a diagnosis and uh, we could all learn from each other. And those honest conversations that people need to have that they don't want to have in front of other people, we provide opportunities in our meetings to do that. But we also say to them, learn to have the hard conversations. People yeah, get better when you don't keep secrets and you don't, you know. I've talked to a lot of caregivers that felt that they almost got, if not as bad, like you said, worse than an individual because they get worn down. They don't take care of themselves. They're constantly, you know, giving out. And so they can get to where they adopt and, and are right there with the individual or maybe even worse. So I think that's a great, and, and you don't see that a lot. You really don't. Cause what I said that a lot of people don't want to have that interaction, but yeah, instead, they don't, it, they don't really want to deal with it. And there's times where, for instance, we've had, and, and we never require that if you have a diagnosis, you have to bring your loved one. Or if you're a loved one and you come and you don't have the person that you love who has a diagnosis, we don't we don't say any of that. We anybody can come. You have a diagnosis or you don't. And um, the person that or we've had where parents have come and they're brokenhearted because their young adult male son is smoking pot. He has bipolar disorder, won't take his medicine. And pot has the ability to make you psychotic when you have mental health issues. And he's just getting worse and worse. And we have the, the young woman who's sitting there with her mom, who was a methamphetamine addict telling these parents, what her mom did that helped her get better. So, you know, you have this cross-pollination of something remarkable that can only happen when you have a group of people like that together. Yeah, Yeah, we've had some NAMI groups where just once you get to know each other, it just, you mold into just an amazing group of people. And that's why we think community and the thing that we're doing with our platform is so critical is that we believe you get injured in community, but that's also the place where you need to get healed and grow 
and, and work together because you get to share each other's talents and experiences that you talked about, but you also uh, get to carry each other's burdens and help each other along with the company. I would say that the key is that support groups work, but not all support groups are healthy. And so there's actually, uh, for instance, that's why in Fresh Hope we have tenants. We have seven tenants that it the philosophy centers around those. And there's a movement in that. So in other words, if somebody comes and every week they just puke up about how awful it is and nobody understands and they have no family and blah, blah, blah. Well, we, we love them enough to not allow them to, uh, to tarry at that spot or wallow at that spot because um, that kind of ruminating is going to make it worse. And um, so, I mean, we'll tell them, you know, it's really important to talk. It's really important to get this out. But what are you going to do about it? Because you can do some things about it. And I think people get empowered then. They, they, yeah, I, your tenets are awesome. Uh, we have a creed and we have 12 Bible verses and explanations of them. But I love what yours is. Uh, your seven tenets are both for the caregiver and the sufferer. You have a side of each one of them with that same tenet and allows it again for them to fuse on the same idea, the same thought that they're struggling with and put it together and move forward together which I think is a phenomenal idea that yeah. you've done. Um, so you have your tenants. Uh, you also talk about one thing I really want to hit on is that at least in the, the coaching I saw that or I received talked about listening. Can you talk to me about listening and a hope coach and how that coach helps those individuals get through? And you said not just mental health. There's a lot of things that people right. lose hope over. Yeah. So this can be used anywhere. So can well, you talk about yeah. And for instance, small group leaders in a church, the the Bible study leaders and the Sunday school teachers and anybody that, you know, the youth counselors are all trained in as hope coaches in some some churches that are taking advantage of this. And um, basically what we do is just teach people how to have a conversation, a caring conversation. Um, with people, maybe in a couple of settings, but it's it's not extensive. It's not, you know, that will um, help the person that is the hope seeker to learn how to um, go from hopelessness to hope. And uh, part of it is that people have to be heard. And so we teach people to ask questions that we learned in trauma healing uh, which is done by the American uh, Bible Society as the uh, National Institute of uh, uh, Trauma or the Trauma Healing Institute of America or something like that. Um, okay. We we have a number of master facilitators. I, I'm a facilitator training, but I I'm not a master. My wife is or soon will be, and we have a couple of others. But what we learned in that is that um, people need to be heard. And if they're not heard um, and you just start trying to pump them full of scripture passages and build them up, what you're really doing is try to bandage up a wound that's not been cleaned out. And it could even have shards of glass in there. And, you know, if 
uh, if a bomb detonated in their life, so to speak, I'm speaking metaphorically, um, you know, they could have a wound that is just horrible and you got to clean it out. Sometimes people need surgery. And so we teach people to listen, to ask the questions and listen that when people can tell their story, when they could tell the most painful parts of all these things that in fact helps people process the pain. And if you don't process your pain, your pain will deal with you at some point or another. Yeah, it's going to come out. Definitely. So as a, how do you become, since we talked about the coach and, and how important it is to, to be a good listener, how do we, if, let's say I want to be a, a hope coach. I love what you're doing. It sounds great. I, I, I even want to help maybe the individual that is in my house that's a sufferer, someone that has a diagnosis. What, how do you become a hope coach or how do you get this training? You just go to our website, freshhope.us and look under the section for hope coaching and um, sign up for it. It's that simple. And uh, then the training is online. So um, you, you watch the videos and work through the lessons. I think there's four of them, if I'm remembering right, or five. Um, and then you um, have a live time with one of uh, the person that oversees the certification of the Hope Coaches. And um, you actually try it together online. And then you're certified. And um, it does, we do charge for it if uh, people are willing to pay. If people can't or are not able to pay for it, then we do uh, provide Hope Coach training for free. Um, we normally then are not able to get them the book and that kind of thing. We can give it to them electronically because there's just costs involved in it for us. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I, the little booklet I have here, people yep. can see that. And uh, what I uh, loved about it was the part you talked about at the end is where, uh, and I'm a kind of a, I guess as being a pilot, and I'm kind of a hands-on guy. So uh, reading it and learning it and, and taking tests on it was all great. I, I, you know, I was able to retain the information so it was easy to understand. It. But what I loved about it was you had some practical application. We got to practice it with other people yep. to give you the confidence to go, Hey, you know what? I, I think I can do that. So I loved everything about your program. I think it's awesome. Uh, I think it, uh, it definitely will help uh, individuals if they go out there and want to try this to help their situation, either the caregiver or the individual with the diagnosis. Yeah. I think it's a great program. Um, what do you think? Uh, we probably run out of time. We probably may have went over. And so we may divide this up a little bit, uh, but tell me, um, uh, if we, in our last few minutes, is there something we left out or something that you think you need to stress uh, more or anything else that you would like to say to our, our, our audience today about uh, Fresh Hope and what you've been through? Well, um, you know, the bottom line for me is that it is possible to live well in spite of a mental health diagnosis or losing a loved one or having um, trauma early in life, or all of those things. And um, we are in the business of helping people become their emotional 
and uh, spiritual best self possible. And um, I always tell people, if you think you don't have any issues, um, let me come and live with you for 24 to 36 hours. I have the spiritual gift of triggering people. And I will trigger you enough that we will find out what your issues really are. I, I want to volunteer for that same program because I'm really good at that too. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can, me and you can team up as partners and go, hey, we'll come together. You know, yeah. it'll take us less time to figure out what your issues are. Well, it's are. just like the guys, the young guys at the gym. Uh, I usually uh, put my stuff in a locker that's by the um, scale. And then I'll see some young guys uh, weighing themselves and getting all excited because they gained a half a pound. And I'll tell them, hey, I have a weight gaining program. If you'd like, I have a card. <laughs> it's amazing what I can do. For well, you. they take one look at me and go, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, it works really well. well. And the other thing we didn't talk about real quick, I, your book itself. What? Tell me about your book versus uh, if I do the Coach Hope, is the book more expansive than with the program? Is it part of the program or is it part of your story or both? How's your book? Oh, well, there's numerous books. So there's the um, Hope Coaching Training book. Uh, there's Healing the Heart Wounds of Ministry booklet. And then there's, um, we have one that uh, one of my staff members wrote, Samantha wrote, uh, 40 Days of Hope, and that's built on the seven tenets. And then there's two books I've written. The first one is um, uh, Fresh Hope Living Well in Spite of a Mental Health Diagnosis. That's like a workbook somebody can work through, but it's also a book other people can just read and get a lot from it. Some of our groups use it in their group every week. And then my wife and I just uh, recently finished a book. It's, I think it's been out for a year now. Um, It's called um, holding to hope, how to stay sane while loving someone with a mental illness. Yeah. See, that would be great for the caregiver side of that. It sounds like, but um, yeah. And that's built on the seven tenets as well as as the first book is. Well, that's what I want to ask is that you said you had a workbook of the seven tenets. I wasn't aware of that. So I'll have to look and see if I can find that, but I want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, I'm going to ask one question, put you on the spot a little bit. uh, So it might make you nervous, but I'll give you time to think about it. Did you go see the new Top Gun movie? No, I haven't gotten to see it yet. Um, But I, I keep waiting for the price to go down on Amazon Prime from 1999 to being yeah. one of their, you know, 5.99. Then I'll see it. It may take a while, but I'm going to give you a, a, a heads up. Okay, so when you go to watch the movie, if you've seen, did you see the first Top Gun movie 40 years ago when we were? Yeah, but I'm not a. I don't yeah. remember storylines very well. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is you got to have a call sign. Okay, like, you know, there's Maverick and Goose and all these different call signs. So to be really cool, you got to have a call sign. Like when I I was flying, I had a call sign. So I I wanted to see today if you could pick your call sign that we could announce to the world. So you only have a few minutes here to think about while I'm talking. What what is a call sign? It's like my call sign is Hitch. And and when you make a radio call and you fly with someone, like if I have a flight of three or four airplanes with me, I go hits check and they go two, three, four. Oh, I have one. Okay, excellent. So what are we going to announce as your your call sign today? Hoper. Hoper? Yeah, Hoper. 
<laughs> Hope for zero one. Uh, it's announced today. All right, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Again, yeah. thank you for coming. I enjoyed it. Uh, we could probably do these uh, every week and, and I'd get a lot and learn a lot out of it. So I just really appreciate you taking because I know you do a lot of different things. you got a busy schedule. So I just appreciate you being on. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, John. And God bless you guys as you get your platform going and um, working in this uh, space. It's there. There's a great need. Oh, there definitely is. All right. 